to share with you all what I've been learning in Scripture. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20 to 33. So let's turn to that. And this really is a, a part two sermon of what I preached last week regarding the gift specifically referring to tongues. Um, Paul has spent really the entire chapter first four, of chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians to explain this phenomenon of tongue, this gift of tongues to the church, as well as the right practice of it. And we do want to spend as much time and as much effort as he has in explaining what he wants the church of Corinth to learn, as if it is important for the church of Corinth to learn, it is also important for churches here in America to learn. And certainly what you learn here in uh, this sermon could be applied to uh, this church as well as any church that you participate in uh, if you are not coming to this church regularly or you have friends and family members who go to different churches, the truth also applies because the truth of God's Word is really the truth which should be applied to all the churches in the world. Um, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20 to 33, and we're in the middle of a conversation, so let's dive in and see what God has for us here. It says, verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speaking tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his hearts are disclosed, and so following his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation that all things be done for the building up. Anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but God of peace. Let's bow in the word of prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful for this passage. We know that this is probably one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the whole New Testament, and yet here we are, and many churches avoid this because uh, it is a rather controversial subject, and they don't want to alienate anyone, but we are going to be faithful in your word. And since we arrive at this point and we preach verse by verse and discover verse by verse, and we know that every single passage in Scripture, every single verse in Scripture has a meaning and has a reason to be there because all the Scripture is written for our edification, um, we want to find out what it is. And so we pray that you would lead us and guide us. Uh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict hearts if any hearts need to be convicted. And we pray that you would just lead us to know the truth and apply it to our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our God is a God of water. This is seen clearly in the creation. 
In creation, we see the earth rotating on the 23.5 degree axis. And that is for a good reason. The reason is that if the earth wasn't rotating on that specific axis, much of the earth would be uninhabitable. Uh, the middle portion of the earth simply would be way too hot, while the opposite polars of the earth would be way too cold. And the only portions of the earth that you will be able to live in, it will be the mid-latitude portions of the earth. And only half of today's farmable lands will actually be farmable, given the fact that only those portions of the earth are actually livable. And also, if the earth wasn't rotating in a 24-hour period, it will also make the earth virtually uninhabitable. Say if the earth is rotating much slower than the 24-hour period, that is around one time, the whole earth will be either too hot or too cold. The portion of the earth that is exposed to the sun will be way too hot for the animals and plant life to live, while the portions of the earth that are far away from the sun or facing away from the sun will be too cold for the plant life or the animal's life to live. No animal will be able to survive the night. No plants will be able to survive those nights. So God had perfectly ordered the earth in such a manner to make life livable here on earth. Not only is the earth life livable because of God's water for the earth, we also see the moon. The moon also is placed around the earth in perfect geometry so that the life on earth can be habitable. The moon plays a huge part in the fact that earth is a habitable place. The moon stabilizes the earth. It keeps the earth around that 23.5 degree axis, as well as keep the tides of the earth in motion. Without the earth, perhaps those beachfront, uh, without the moon, that is, perhaps those beachfront properties would be simply underwater because the tides cannot be controlled. You would just have water slushing everywhere around the continents. The moon plays a huge portion, a huge part in stabilizing the order of the earth. And much of the reason why the earth is the way it is and the physical world is the way which it is is because our God is a God of order. He desires for things to be in order. When things are in order, we all benefit from it. And we all know this from our own personal lives as well. You want your life to be in order, right? For most of us, we don't want our finances to be disarray. We want our finances to be in order. We don't want our rooms to be messy. Sometimes it is, but we're seeking to keep it in order. We don't want our jobs to be a mess. We want our jobs to be in order. We want to know our schedules so that we may know when to go to a certain place and what places to be at a certain time because that is what's beneficial to us. If we're not there, certainly we won't be able to fulfill our requirements, our responsibilities. So therefore, we need to keep our schedule in order. Keeping things in order is a benefit, it's a positive attribute, and it is an attribute of God as well. However, as we know from Scripture, keeping things in order is not something that is only physical. Keeping things in order is something that is of spiritual nature as well, because when God first created us, there's a spiritual order to things. Our God is a God of order. Not only is He creating this world in order, He's also creating relationships between us and Him in order. Namely, that he is God, and we're in the order of obeying him. He gives the order, and we're to obey his commandments. 
This is seen very, very clearly in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 when God first made us and commanded us to live for Him, to take care of His creation, to have dominion over the earth, to take care of the animals and the birds and all the things of this world, and to represent Him to the things of this world or to one another and live out our image of God for His glory. This is God's order for us. However, also in the very beginning, we have fallen short of that order given the fact that we disobeyed Him. We disobeyed God's perfect command of us. And this will carry the effect of really a disobedience of physical order in this world. Say, for example, if you disobey a physical order like gravity, and you decide one day to climb up to the top of this building and just jump off, what would happen to you? You'll probably just get seriously hurt or die. That's what's going to happen to you. Well, the same goes with disobeying God's spiritual order. If you disobey God's spiritual order, you will also die. And this is what God had warned Adam and Eve about in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, where it says, If you disobey me and eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is what God told them not to do, the day that you shall eat of it, you will die. You will die. You will suffer the consequences of disobeying the spiritual order. And that actually became true of humanity. Not that we all died that day, but we certainly experienced spiritual death. Spiritual death is what we experience today, the destruction of our world through sin. Sin is what's destroying us. Sin is that ugly word, that hurtful word that comes from that ugly heart of ours, which we all have, even though we may try to say we're not that bad, but we are all bad compared to the glories and the honor and the majesty and the purity of God. We're all contributors to the evil of this world. And that's what God is saying, destroying this world. And that's what ultimately is bringing forth that physical death in this world as well. Our God could have just left us alone and just said, well, you guys are all destroying yourselves. You guys choose to be in disorder. You guys will suffer the consequences of your physical and spiritual disorder. But he did not. What he did is that he's seeking to bring this world back into order. And the way he's doing so is through the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, we need to be backing our spiritual order with God. And the only way that we can do so is through the restoration that's conducted by the Son, Jesus Christ, through His life, death, and resurrection. Jesus, He came and lived a perfect life to give that perfect life to us. We lived our sinful lives. We did not live our lives in that order of God, but Jesus did. And He gave that perfect righteous life to you and to me as righteousness, as what we need before God in order to be in His presence, in order to have that relationship with God. If you believe that life is yours, and He died on the cross, and if we die on the cross, He paid for the punishment, the punishment which we all deserve for our sins. See, God being the righteous God, He must punish sins because sin is heinous before God, and He is a righteous judge. He would have to deal with that in us. But Jesus dealt with that in his cross for us. Jesus paid for the punishment that is ours so that we do not have to pay it. If you were to pay it, we would be eternally in hell. But God actually paid it for us through the Son, Jesus Christ. He brought that into order, and he rose from the dead to show us that we will once again be with him if we believe unto him. This is the glory, the, the, the gift of God. Uh, we will forever be with God forever. God does not just want us to live in some corner of heaven by ourselves, but rather He wants us to live forever with Him. 
We will be back in that relationship with God, which you were designed to have in his presence. Through Christ, we have all these things. Jesus is our Savior. He is the one to bring us back into that order with God. And as we are in order with God through our faith in Christ, this is also exemplified through our interaction with one another in the church of God. You see, we're not just to live our lives individually. 1 Corinthians is a letter about a church, a church that, which is composed of many believers, many people who are saved, and all of us who are saved are coming together to offer our praise, offer our sacrifice of service unto the Lord. And as God deserves our sacrifice of service, as the body is encouraged, as God is glorified through our corporate effort, there needs also be, to be order within the church itself, namely within the church services. As we are watered up, what we say, in our personal lives, we need to have also water within the church service. And this is exactly what 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is all about. How do we exercise our spiritual gifts, even the controversial ones which we see here in this passage, in the matter of order so that God can be glorified, so that believers can be encouraged, or if any unbelievers come to the church, they can also be drawn to conviction so that they will believe unto Jesus as also their Lord and Savior. This is the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Why we should have orderly service as a reflection of our orderly lives in the Lord. There are two reasons why. A orderly service, as we're going to see here in our first portion of the passage, produce conviction. A orderly service produces conviction. We see this in verse 20 to 25. And again, let's dive in. And, and this is the middle of a conversation, but I will explain where this is all coming from. So let's dive in and see what God has said to us. Starting from verse 20, it says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speaking tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But for all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, as we come to this passage, we're really coming to the middle of a conversation. You might be really confused and say, well, Paul, what are you talking about? This is like way beyond what I'm trying to, like what I can understand. And, and really, there isn't that much of a difficulty in understanding if we understand the context of this passage. Really, what Paul is getting at uh, through this passage, and even through the whole series of Corinthian uh, in this letter, that is through all the series which we've been preaching through, is that of a healthy church. He's encouraging the church to be a healthy church. He's encouraging the church to be a church which they can function in such a way that they have a corporate goal, a, a unified goal of glorifying God and not themselves. And this is a problem of the Corinthian church because the Corinthian church have been fighting. There's jealousy and strife among the Corinthian church. We see this clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul rebukes them, saying that you're still of the flesh, for while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only a human way? 
And so what happened in the Corinthian church is that people are coming to the church, but they're not coming to church for the right reason. People are serving the church, but not serving in the church for the right reasons. Uh, there are a variety of gifts which people are serving in. We saw in the book of Corinthians. We saw in the book of Romans. There were prophecy. There were teaching. There were tongues. There were administration. There were helps. There, there were miracles. There were healing. There were all kinds of gifts which are operating within that church. It's not to say all churches need to have all the gifts, but people are operating these gifts, and people wanted to have the gifts that were most upfront. They want to be seen. They want to be noted. And so thereby, when people are coming together as a church, there was not true cooperation because the only way that you can have true cooperation is when you actually have a true and understandable and unified goal as to far as to what you're seeking to accomplish within the church. And given the fact that everybody's seeking to glorify themselves in their own spiritual gift to say, look at me, I'm the one who's teaching. Look at me, I'm the one who's prophesying. Look at me, I'm the one who's preaching in tongues. Or look at me, I'm the one who's healing. Look at me, I'm the one who's doing miracles. Look at me, I'm the one who's doing so and so and that and that. The Corinthian church has become a disorderly church, and people are coming to the church and say, you guys are all mad. You guys are all doing your stuff. I don't get anything coming from the church. Uh, I, have, I just get confusion when I come to the church. And this is exactly what Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church about. He's seeking for the Corinthian church to avoid in this very matter. So he says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? The whole body were a year, would be the sense of smell. See, all of you guys want to be the head. All of you guys want to be the hand. All of you guys want to be the eye, but none of you guys want to be the inward portions of your body, the lungs, the stomach, the parts of the body which people do not see. And yet you must know that the parts of your body which people don't see, your innards, your stomach, your heart, your lungs, are actually far more important than the portions of your body which you could see. So you need to treasure those portions of your body. You actually know that you are important, not because you're seeing, but because you are in your function of the body of Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 22, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So what we have here is people doing their spiritual gifts, practicing their spiritual gifts to honor themselves. There are a variety of different things. And we talked about this teaching, prophesying. There are different things which will elevate themselves, show off their abilities. And Paul says, you need to be careful. What you need to do, what you need to understand is that you need to do all these things in cooperation, not for your own glory, but for the glory of God. And that's the only way that you could do it for, because it's only when you understand the overall goal that you can have this kind of cooperation. Now, with that, he wants to mention one particular spiritual gift that has been misused quite a bit in the Corinthian church. One particular one which we can all relate to that is misused in our culture as well, hotly debated, and that is a spiritual gift of tongues. It is perhaps the most controversial gift, and perhaps this sermon is the most skipped over sermon of all churches whenever they come to 1 Corinthians, just completely skip over chapter 14 because they don't want to offend anyone because how controversial this is. But Paul didn't skip over it. He wanted to talk about it because of the controversy and yet also of the confusion that is bringing about the churches. Because churches are experiencing confusion and people are being distracted in their worship, Paul actually has to address this straight on. While not forbidding it, but he has to address the practice of it to make sure that the church is functioning in a way that is honoring to the Lord. 
So we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and really in verse 20, we see the fact that Paul is saying, Brothers, do not be children your thinking, be infants in evil, but in thinking be mature. And in verse 21, in the law is written by people of strange tongues, by lips of foreigners that will speak to this people, even then they will not listen to me. And here's the key. It says, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And so you here have a comparison of two spiritual gifts, and Paul is addressing it, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And so to begin with, and we kind of talked about this last week, and this is a continuation of the sermon last week, the gift of tongues, and we have to explain this, the gift of tongues actually is a gift which is given to the church by God to grow the church. In some ways, if it's practiced rightly, you will also edify the church. We see the practice of tongues in Acts chapter 2, verse 6 through 11, in the very first practice by the apostles and also uh, Peter himself. When they spoke in different languages, people were hearing them in their own language and they were bewildered, we see this, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed, they were astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking in Galileans, speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling our own tongues the mighty works of God. Here's how tongues benefited the church. It benefited the church in such a way that you drew attention to the church. What happened is that apostles were speaking in tongues, and the tongues were a foreign language which they normally do not speak. When people were passing by them, all of a sudden they were hearing them speak in their own language. They were amazed and say, something's happening there. They're telling the glories of God in our language, which we know that they don't normally speak. This will be the same experience that you would have, what people would have on Hollywood Boulevard, say, you being the ethnicity you are, and you're not Asian, you're not Chinese, and a lot of Chinese tourists or Asian tourists will walk on Hollywood Boulevard, all of a sudden you're out there, and you're speaking perfect Mandarin, praising God, glorifying God. What would they do? They would probably start talking to you and take pictures of you and filming you, Right? They would do that. That would be what the Chinese tourists would do. That would get their attention. And when you begin to tell them about the glories of God, they will pay attention to you. See, when I talk to them, they don't pay attention to me. I try to share the gospel with them on Wednesdays. They don't even pay attention to me. You may try to do that as well. But if you, being who you are, begin to speak perfect Chinese, who knows? They might start paying attention to you. But that's what the gift of tongues is. It's a miracle. Say that you don't normally speak that language, and now you begin to speak that language, and People are paying attention to you, and Peter actually drew their attention, began to preach the gospel message, and that gospel message actually drew uh, people to conviction. And as a result, the church became established. 3,000 people were saved in that single day. This was the gift of tongues to the church. Now, when it comes to the church, as the church is gathered, Paul is giving some specific instructions, saying that when you're outside of the church, it's fine because tongues for unbelievers, we'll talk about this a little, little later, says when you're outside the church and you're drawing all these people to the church because you're speaking in their language, that is fine. But within the church, given the fact that there are many people of different ethnicities and many people of different languages, you want to speak in a language where all of people can understand 
understand. You don't want to be just speaking to a group of people, or you don't want to speak in some kind of angelic tongue, which nobody understands, because what the meaning of the church is for, or the purpose of the church, is that people will be edified. The church may be built up. Not just some people, not just yourself, but the entire church will be built up. That is why he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 5, if you are to speak in tongues, make sure that you get it interpreted so that you can be used by God to build up the entire church. You need to make sure that whatever he's saying is understood by all. This is the purpose of God in creating an orderly service. Now, this is also compared to prophecy. As we see in verse 22, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So what is prophecy? Well, prophecy actually also was happening in the church. Prophecy was tongues, in a sense, except that it was in an ordinary language, in a language which people understood. It's in clear, understandable language. That is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 19, I would rather speak five clear words than 10,000 words in tongues. He's talking about prophecy. He wants to speak in words that are clear. Well, prophecy is also edifying to the church, given the fact that these are words from God. We see prophets speaking on behalf of God throughout Old and New Testament. For example, in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 7, Jeremiah was called by God to be a prophet of God. And God said to Jeremiah, Do not say, I'm only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. This is the role of prophet. Prophets is to speak whatever God calls them to speak, and that is their role. They're to just say, to iterate, to regurgitate whatever God calls them to say. In the New Testament, we see this also in Peter's description of the prophets. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The key of prophecy is this. Yes, it is words from God. As tongue also is words from God because you're, again, speaking a language that you do, not from, you do not know because God actually is giving it to you. But prophecy does take precedence in the very sense that it is clear understanding. It does not need interpretation. So, therefore, it is more readily available to the church to, for the edification of the church. That is simply what Paul is saying this is what God is communicating to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And to cap it all off, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 19, again, I reiterate this. He says, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind. He's talking about prophecy to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So be clear in your thinking. Be clear in your, prom, uh, in your communication. Be clear in your proclamation in the church so that the entire church can be edified. Now we come to verse 22. And Paul is saying this. Now even though I'm saying to you that tongues is for a purpose and prophecies is for a purpose, and I want you to know that within the church, there are different reasons for different gifts are operating. And in order for you to operate the church or to conduct your service in such a way that is in order, you need to understand the reason as to why each of the spiritual gifts is given. And if you understand the reason why spiritual gifts are given to the church, then perhaps you will understand why spiritual gifts should occur at certain times within the church and why spiritual gifts should not occur at a certain time within the church. It says in verse 22, and we read this already, he said, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for believers but for believers. This is perhaps one of the hardest understandable 
verses in Scripture is probably the most difficult interpretive verse in Scripture. What is Paul talking about? Saying tongues are not for believers but for unbelievers, and while prophecy is for believers and not for unbelievers. Well, there's a reason for why God gave tongues to the church and reason why God gave prophecy to the church. What science is, is this. A sign is a direction. It's a pointing toward. They're not the substance of themselves, but rather the pointing toward the substance who is Christ. What God is saying is this. When you speak in tongues, and this is seen already in our explanation of the gift of tongues, you are actually pointing unbelievers to Christ because of the fact that you're speaking in a language they either understand or do not understand at that moment. And their reason at the, for, for, the, for, the, for the exercise of tongues, say if they understand it, you'll point them to Christ. If they do not understand it, there is an element of pointing them to Christ as well. We see this in this passage where tongues are actually a sign pointing unbelievers to Christ, namely both unbelieving Jews and also unbelieving Gentiles to Christ. Let's look at this and you'll understand this further as we look at verse 21. It says this, the reason why tongues will put unbelievers to Christ is this. By people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. You say, well, Paul, you're just throwing all these things at us, and, and really all these things require us, as he, he says in verse 20, to be mature in our thinking and to be really established in our theology, and, and, and you are throwing all this theology at me. And Paul, what are you saying? And want to take this slowly for us, so because it takes quite a bit of understanding for me to, to, to come to, and so I'm sure that it's going to take a little bit of understanding for you as well. What Paul is doing is this. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. He's quoting from a Jewish portion of history in which God is saying to the Jewish people around 700 B.C. that by people of strange lips or the foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. So what is happening to the Jewish world around 700 B.C.? What is happening is this. God actually has judged Israel. When he judged Israel, he was allowing the Assyrians, who are the conqueror of the northern part of Israel, to come and take Israel captive. So the northern part of Israel is taken captive, and Isaiah is actually prophesying to the southern portion of Israel, Judah, that is, that the same thing is going to happen to them. The Babylonians are going to come and conquer the nation of Judah. And what they're going to experience is this. They're going to march into the nation. They're going to march into their city. And they'll be speaking words which they do not understand. And they're going to have the power of God with them because God actually is with the Babylonians to bring discipline and judgment against the Israelites. And Paul actually is using this verse to describe how tongues are used to bring the Jewish people judgment as well as call to repentance. Say if tongues are being spoken and are, this is truly the works of God, the miracle of God, displaying the glories of God, and all this glories of God and the proclamation of God is spoken in a language outside of the Hebrew language, the Jewish people are hearing it and they're brought to a sense of understanding that God actually has skipped over us or circumvented us because we have rejected the Messiah they will be brought to jealousy. They say, you know what? I should believe or we should believe in the Messiah because God now is at work in miraculous ways in the Gentile world, in bringing languages uh, of, of his pro proclamation of his, uh, uh, his majesty in all kinds of languages outside the Hebrew language. So therefore, we should be paying attention. This is actually the intent of Paul as well in Romans chapter 11, verse 14, in which he says, somehow I want to make my ministry so that my fellow Jews may be jealous, thus to save some of them. So this is really what this passage is saying. 
when God says, I will bring foreign lips to this world where Jewish people do not understand, and this is a, really a description of what tongues are, I'm going to use this gift to bring the Jews to jealousy so that they may be saved. This also brings Gentiles to salvation, as we already have seen, because when Gentiles hear the gospel message in their own language, they're brought to salvation. We see this in Acts chapter eight, verse, oh, chapter two, verse eight through eleven. In the very, uh, again, we read this again in the very act of the Peter and the apostles in the day of Pentecost, how people responded to Peter and the apostles as Peter and the apostles were speaking in tongues. They're saying to them, "How is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia?" Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? And so what happened is that those people were hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language, and they were surprised. They were, they were just, just astonished, the fact that people could do this, so they were drawn to attention, and as a result, Peter was able to preach the gospel message, and unbelievers became believers. So in this way, we see verse 22 is true. Tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. So when we have a church setting where everybody's speaking tongues just for believers to hear, Paul is saying, you better be careful, because its primary reason is to draw unbelievers to know the Lord. Say, so if you're going to do that, fine but getting interpreted so that people can understand. But if nobody understands you, you should be speaking outside. If it is real tongue, other people of other languages should be able to understand you if it is a real miracle of tongues. Otherwise, you may just be speaking gibberish or someone is teaching how to manufacture tongues, which is not a real tongue. So it is not for believers, but for unbelievers. And Paul is actually is very clear here in verse 22. Now, when you come together, Paul says in verse 23, you have to be careful. If you do speak it within the church, make sure you get it interpreted. If you don't get it interpreted, this is what would happen. Verse 30, 23 says, If the whole church comes together and all speaking tongues, an outsider or unbeliever enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? This is a conviction which Paul is seeking to bring to the Corinthian church. He's saying that if you fill your worship service with everybody speaking tongues and there are no interpreters, it really benefits no one given the fact that unbelievers or given the fact that believers can't understand you. Even unbelievers, when they come, they're going to say that you're out of your mind. You say, well, you know what? I thought Paul, he said that unbelievers are, uh, are going to uh, be encouraged by tongues. Well, when they come to church, they actually are expecting you to also speak in clear language. It's fine that you are outside and drawing them to the church if you are speaking real tongues and they actually do understand you and, and they're drawn to the church as a result of that. But when they do come to church, they arrive at the point where they no longer need that sign. And what Paul is saying is this, when they come to church, they should hear clear proclamation of the words of God. You'd be confusing to them and you'd be confusing to all of us, say if they come to church and one section is speaking one tongue, the other section is speaking another tongue, the other section is speaking another tongue, everybody's speaking in tongues, and they can only understand one section and not the other section, and they'll be thinking, well, this is a chaotic environment. And they were going to say, you're out of your mind. Say, they don't understand anything at all. Then truly all of us are out of our minds. So Paul says, be careful. 
be careful. And he's later on going to give instructions saying, if you do do this, if you do practice the speaking of tongues, make sure you do it one at a time and get something or get someone to interpret what you're saying. Prophecy, however, does not have the same problem, the same issue, given the very fact that prophecy is a clear spoken language. He says in verse 24, 25, if all prophesy, on the other hand, within the church, an unbeliever or outsider enters, is convicted by all, is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God, declare that God is really among you. So he's saying this, what prophecy is really is, is a clear spoken language of God, clear spoken communication of God, which does not require interpretation. It's much like me preaching, even though I'm not prophesying, but I'm speaking in words which you can understand readily. And when you speak in these words, there are three effects which it carries upon, or actually four in the end. But the first one is this, he's convicted by all. There's conviction that comes from clear proclamation of the words of God. We must remember when Peter and the apostles were speaking in tongues, people were not convicted at that moment. It's after that. It's after that when Peter began to preach the gospel and speak about Jesus, we see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, that they were cut to the heart and said to, the, said to Peter and rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? So they were convicted not by the speaking our tongues. They were not convicted by the miracle and seeing everybody speaking languages and different things. They were actually were convicted by Peter, who then spoke in a clear language. In that moment would be Greek, in which people understood and understood that Jesus is the Messiah, and they asked the question, brothers, what shall we do? So there's conviction that comes about through clear communication of God's word. Not only is there conviction, there's also accountability. We see this in verse 24. He is, a call, he is called to account by all. Accountability is basically all of us holding one another accountable to follow Christ. We see accountability in James chapter 5, verse 16 where James encouraged the church to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. There is accountability in our fellowship. Now, there is no accountability unless there is clear communication. Say, everybody just speaking in tongues, say, we don't understand what people are saying. Then no one can communicate with each other. No one can pray for each other, which you see in first four, uh, chapter 14. If people don't know what you're saying, how can they say amen to what you're saying? They cannot. So therefore, even that fellowship, that accountability has to be done in clear communication. And then verse 25, the secrets of the hearts are exposed, are disclosed. This is what happens when they hear clear communication of God's word as well. See, people come up to me all the time. They say, well, pastor, I'm thankful for the message you gave. How did you know that uh, that I should hear the message? Because uh, the very thing which you said is exactly what I was going through. I say, well, I don't really know what you're going through. I don't know at all because the Holy Spirit actually is the one who applied it to your life. I'm just preaching the Word of God. But yet the reason why they could say that or the reason why they felt that the secrets of their hearts are exposed, uh, exposed rather, is because they're hearing clear communication. As they hear com com clear communication, what ends up happening is the fourth effect they we see this in verse 25. They fall on their face and they will worship God and declare that God really is among you. And this is what we want within the church of God. We want clear communication, clear conviction of God. And so, amen. So this is exactly what church service is all about. 
Some people say, oh, that's just a boring church service. All you guys just sit and uh, just like uh, listen to a sermon and, and all you guys just learning and, and just uh, hearing uh, one another talk in clear language. And why go to this other church? The fog machines, there's a huge uh, uh, people, uh, production music, people are or piano playing, organ playing, people running around in a circle and people are speaking tongues to everybody. Like, that's what I want to go to. I say, you know what? I'm not against speaking tongues. I know that God can bring forth gifts of God as he wills. I'm not against fog machines. I'm not against production of great music. I'm not against all these things. But what God wants here, what should compose of a worship service, and what Paul's focus is at, is clear communication of God's word and conviction that is from that. That's what worship service is all about. That's what we need to be focused upon. And while I was talking about this with our staff people here in our church, they were encouraged me to watch a video on the snake handling church. I don't know if you ever saw that. It's a rather interesting video, and um, I want to encourage you to just look it up. It's the snake handling church. And say, oh, you want to look at this, Richard, because this might be a good illustration for your sermon. So I looked at it, and just a bunch of people and a pastor in a small uh, church somewhere out in the, in, the, in the countryside of America, and they were actually handling snakes in their hands in the worship service. Uh, they're handling these rattlesnakes, and they were bit, bitten by the rattlesnakes. And supposedly, if you're bitten, bitten by the rattlesnake and you don't die or you don't get hurt, whatever it is, as you've been bitten, you are walking the will of God. If you get bitten and you die from it, then you're not walking the will of God. They're taking Matt, uh, Mark chapter 16 literally. And they're bringing this kind of cessationalism to the church, and there is very little preaching of God's word, just bunch of people handling snakes and music playing and people just dancing and jumping and speaking in tongues, and that's what the church is all about. This is not what church should be. What church should be is a clear communication of God's Word. I'm not saying that we can't have miracles happening within the church. People proclaim this all the time. They say, we want, come to church to see healings. Come to church to witness miracles. Come to church to experience uh, uh, some kind of uh, miraculous event in your life. But what about the ordinary means of grace? And what Paul is saying here is this. You should focus on the ordinary means of grace. When people are overly focused on the sensationalism of the, uh, of the parts of the worship service or the emotionalism parts of worship service, not the fact that God can do those things. God can't. But when you are overly in that area of worship service, what you have is the lack of the ordinary means of grace of conviction through the Word of God. And what God wants us to have is that conviction. That's why he said, that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, 25. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, that's what Jesus says, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. When the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. See, you've been found on a rock. You're doing the will of the Lord. You're just trusting and relying on the ordinary means of grace, living out the words of God in your life. On the other hand, in the very same sermon, Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 to 23, Jesus warned against this. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Say, so, you know, there are people in the world who will go to Jesus in the last day and say, you know what, we did these miracles. See, my, my Christian faith is on the basis of miracles, on the basis of these 
healings on the basis of these sensational things which I experienced in worship services. And God, didn't you do that in me? God says, what are you talking about? I was never in that. Whatever is empowering you wasn't me. It could be a demonic force or you're just deceiving yourself. You're just speaking in fake tongues or manufactured tongues. I was never in that. I did not prophesy through you. I did not cast out demons through you. I did not do those mighty works through you. In fact, I never knew you. I never did. So therefore, the encouragement for us as a church is this. We need to trust and rely on the ordinary means of grace. And what Paul is saying is this. Trust and rely on the clear communication of God's word. Do not depend upon the sensationalist, uh, emotionalist uh, versions of Christian faith, but rather depend upon the clear understanding of God's word and the conviction that comes from that. So we see worldly service coming back. Worldly service produces conviction. Not only so, worldly service produces not just conviction, also encouragement. Worldly service produces encouragement. This is our second point. And we're going to see this in verse 26 to 33. It says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, that all things be done for the building up, Anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three people or prophets speak and let the others wait what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So we come to this passage, and Paul is reiterating what he is not against and what he is for. What is not against is the practice of spiritual gifts. He's not against spiritual gifts at all, as I'm not against spiritual gifts. As he says in verse 26, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, you have a lesson, you have a revelation, you have a tongue, you have interpretation. Fine, fine, that's okay. But just have this in mind, that everything be done for the building up. It says, well, you have tongues, let this be your instruction. Verse 27, if anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. So what is saying this is this. If someone wants to speak in tongues, let only one speak at a time. He says each in turn. Now you can have two or three lined up. That's fine. Two or three at most were lined up, but each one had to speak in turn so that people can understand what is, well, at least you give the interpreter an opportunity to interpret. He cannot interpret three tongues at one time, so he can only interpret one tongue at a time so that someone interpret that tongue, and so then people can be edified through the interpretation of that tongue. Verse 28, it says, if no one's there to interpret, well, you say, what do we do? And this will be a real problem in the Corinthian church as it is a real problem in the churches today as well. As many people would say speak in tongues. In my experience, I don't know about yours, not many people proclaim to have the gift of interpretation, right? Now people say that. People say, oh, I speak in tongues. I know how to speak in tongues. I can speak in tongues right now. But now people say, well, check on me, verify me. I'm a godly man and I have the gift of interpretation and I have the life of ministry to prove that. Not many people do that. So, Corinthian church obviously lacked interpreters, as we lack interpreters, perhaps, in our own days as well. So, if there are no interpreters in verse 28, what do you do? Keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Don't let it happen within a church. And if you know that there are interpreters, just keep it to yourself 
and to God. That's the instruction from the Lord. As far as taunts are concerned, in order to build up an orderly church. With prophecy, you have the same principle. Prophecy is given. Now, prophecy are unlike tongues in the sense that it does not need interpretation. However, it also needs to be done in the orderly way because you have two or three people speaking at the same time. Even though they're speaking clear English, you're still going to have problem understanding them. This is what happen when you have meetings and all three people, all four people in a meeting, all speaking at the same time. And this one, the moderator comes in and says, you know what? Shh, everybody be quiet. You go first, you go second, you go third, you go fourth, right? That's what we do. Says we can't understand anything if everybody's speaking at the same time. This is what Paul is saying in verse 30 to 31. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for we can all prophesy what? One by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. Just do it one at a time. Be clear. Be clear. Don't all be speaking at the same time. Be clear. And then as you're clear, you also are judged by what you say. That's why he also says in verse 21, uh, 29 that two or three prophets speak and that others weigh what is said. So others have to weigh what is said. So you get to weigh on what is being said. You get to weigh in what I have said. You know, you get to come and tell me or whatever, and, and not that I'm prophesying to you, but I, I have to be judged. You know, if I'm not preaching the truth of God, I shouldn't be here. And you'll be a horrible Sunday morning service for you. You have to sit under a sermon which you are uh, thinking that it does not agree with the Word of God. You'll be a horrible Sunday morning sermon if anyone's up here and he's continually preaching heresy and you have to sit there and listen to that. You shouldn't have to. So that's what the prophets um, are needed to go through. They need to be verified. Other people have to weigh in. Other people have to judge what has been said. If they had not been saying what is according to the will of God, according to the words of God, they need to be stopped and not be allowed to continue and thus you could create a worldly service. See, worldly service is not just in order in terms of having everybody speak in turn. Also, the fact that everybody can sit at the worldly service and agree with what is being said in worship. That is what Paul is saying. Ultimately, he says in verse 32, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. People may say, you know what, I'm just going to say what I got to say because that's what God told me to say. God says, you know what, you need to think about this a little bit. Is it really for the building up? If it's not for the building up, you can actually control that. You can actually manage that because what you, can, what you say is subject to your own spirit. You have to understand this. Verse 33, our God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. What we want is for people to feel rested, when people can trust in what is happening, in the sermon that is being preached, the music that is being sung, the lyrics that are being portrayed. Whatever it is happening within the church, people can sit here and trust that when they are sitting here, they're not fighting against something but they're actually resting and worshiping and that this is exactly what God wants them to know and learn. See, our God is not a confusion, but a peace. And much work within the church is made to establish that. You see, today when we come together as a church, there's been much work to make sure that we have an orderly service. Did you know that? Much work. You may come to the church and feel like, oh, this is kind of happening on Sunday morning, but you don't realize that much work goes on throughout the week to make sure that you can come to church and not be distracted by whatever is going on. You have the music team who's been practicing throughout the week, picking songs that are according to the gospel and, and somehow relevant to the sermon, and they're practicing in such a way to make sure they don't sing off notes and the piano is playing the right way so that, you know, when you're singing, you're not distracted by the things which are going on that you don't have to be distracted by. We want to create a worldly service. You have the kids' ministry and the teachers who are teaching, the helpers who are helping, and our teachers 
are being instructed by our kids' ministry director as to what to do, and they have to know exactly what to do so that the kids aren't to be distracted by, uh, by instructions that are not clear. You know, kids, when you lose them, you lose them, you know, and so you have to make sure that they understand what is happening, and you have to be clear in this instruction. So kids' ministry had to be clear as well. You have the administrative portions of, of the church. The bulletins are being printed, and you have the lyrics are being displayed, and you have all these things that are happening within church where we're seeking to make sure that things are happening in an orderly way. Not that they have to be perfect. They're not. Sometimes lyrics are not displayed at the right time, right? Sometimes, uh, sometimes music are saying a little bit off note. Sometimes I stutter. Or sometimes my diction is not right. Sometimes my pronunciation is not correct. Sometimes I may even say little things here and there that I stumbled over and might not say in the best way. Sure. But what we know is this, is that all of us are coming together for the purpose of creating orderly service. We're not trying to create a disorderly service. Even if it happened to be disorderly at times, we ask for forgiveness because we all need the grace of God. We do, but the goal is that we'll create an orderly service so that God can be seen and we can back out of the way. That's the orderly service. As John the Baptist says in John chapter 3, verse 30, Jesus, that is he, must increase and I must decrease, right? I must decrease, but Christ must increase. And the psalm writer Kate Wilkinson wrote it so clearly in the song, May the mind of Christ my Savior, and I want to read this to you, the lyric that really touched my heart. She said, May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel, seeing only him. That's what worship service is all about. If we keep it orderly, they should not see anyone, but see Christ and Christ alone. Amen. You can clip for that, yeah. Now, as we, as we consider that, we have to consider what is our role in that. Because it takes work. It takes work for administrative work to be done. It takes work for teaching to be done. It takes work for uh, the pews to be cleaned. I mean, you look at the pews and the carpet, it looks so clean. And the dirt that was there last week wasn't here this week. Who cleaned it? We don't know. You don't know. I can tell you, but I don't want to take this person's rewards away. But the reality is this, it takes work. And it's fine that we don't tell everybody who does what because ultimately, according to Matthew chapter 6, verse 3 to 4, whenever we do something, we're not to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing because we are seeking for the rewards of God. But at the same time, when you come to church, and, and I appreciate everyone who comes to church, and when you come to church, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing that you're doing. It's wonderful. But one of the things that you should ask is, how are the things being done, and how can I contribute to a orderly service? Now, we can come to church, and we can just be very critical and say, well, that is that, and that is that. It could be doing that better. And certainly, that would be true because we want to have orderly service. Sometimes things are a distraction because we don't do them well enough. But how can you help? How can you help? So people come up to me and ask me the question, how can I help in the church? And sometimes I, I struggle to answer that question because I don't know what you want to do. And so I just throw things here and there, and, and perhaps some of them will stick, and perhaps some of them don't. But I want to encourage you in this. Anything that you see in the church, and we have a big space here, that is not of order, that could be your job. That could be your job. That could be your contribution to make it into order. You know, it could be physical things, facilities. It could be folding clothes. We have a bunch of clothes here that are just everywhere that we're trying to fold and, you know, just small example, administrative things, you know, bulletins and different things that need to be folded or administrative things, slides and making sure things are going, whatever, whatever it is. 
that you can help in. There's things, so many things you can do. Anything that you could think, okay, that could be doing better. That could be more undistracting. That could be your portion, your portion, your part in serving the body of Christ. So think about that for a moment, and perhaps with that we can all come together. And the staff here is willing to help with that. We ask the staff, say, can I help in this? Can I, I already instruct the staff this week, say, you know, anyone to come and ask you, for, you know, to help, you are free to give your job away because that's what the church is about. You're free to give your job away so that you can find another job to do so that you could, so that's how we grow. So because the church is to edify one another in such a way we're building up the saints for the work of ministry. The pastors and staff are not the tools for ministry, but rather the church, are the, entire body, uh, the entire body of Christ, are the tool for ministry. We're all to be used by God for the work of the ministry. So we see here is that our goal, if you're thinking about how you can serve, just think about the church and look at all around you and say, well, that could be more orderly. Well, do that. Do that. Because with that, we can bring undistracting worship to God. And with undistracting worship, we produce conviction or produce encouragement. See, we're simply orderlies of God. With this, I want to conclude with this thought. When I think about orderly, I'm thinking about a person who is in the hospital who is managing patients. The orderly is the one who is moving patients around. Orderly is the one who is cleaning the wards, cleaning the hospital rooms. The orderly is the one who is making sure that patients get into the place where the patient can receive care. This is really what we as a church could be about as well in a sense that we are all orderlies. We're all orderlies in such a way that we're not the ones to make sure healing can, uh, we're not the ones to produce healing, rather, individuals. Even doctors cannot do that. Doctors, nurses, orderlies cannot make a person heal. The only thing we could do is to bring a person to a place where the person is going through the process of healing as their own bodies produce that. The same thing is also within the church. You see, within the church, we can only bring a person to a place where it is worldly, where it is a place where they can receive healing spiritually. We can't make a person heal, but we can make sure the environment is persuasive to healing. So, we that, so that, in a sense, we're encouraging the person to be instructed to follow Christ. We encourage a person to be at church. We encourage a person to fellowship with each other, to be in an environment where they can be healed spiritually. In that sense, we're all orderlies of God. And with that, we may encourage one another to pursue and to grow in maturity. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 says this, the goal is that we will all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, we're just a hospital, and as you are healed in this hospital, you stand up you become an orderly yourself, and as more people come to this hospital, they themselves receive healing, and they also stand up to bring healing to other people. That is our goal, and with order, we shall do that here even in our church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage, and we know that this is a very distinct passage and a very specific passage about orderly service, and yet as we read it, there's much application which we can have in our own lives. Uh, we know, Lord, that uh, we need order in our lives. And in order for us to be ordered, we first must have our relationship with God intact. We must have order in our obedience to the Lord. As we are obeying God, then we may present a service that is of our corporate gathering in order so that others can experience this kind of um, relationship as they come to church. We pray, Father, that our gathering together would represent you, a God of order, our gathering together will represent a life which people can live as they can see hope, 
uh, for their own lives um, as they see order in this church. And we know, Lord, that this is what you want us to be. Pray that this church will bring conviction, bring encouragement, bring exhortation, uh, just bring unbelievers to know you, Lord, um, in this way, Lord. May we accomplish the great commission according to your will. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.